This is the Beaver Tales Podcast with Josh Wharton, who has covered Oregon State athletics since 2013. Welcome to the Beaver Tales podcast. I'm Josh Warden. I chat with former Oregon State student athletes and coaches on every episode of this podcast. And today I've got a recurring guest, a friend of the program, round two today with Pat Casey, who's already joined me on this podcast. One of the earlier episodes in this podcast, mostly what I wanted to talk to him about was a lot of topics regarding 2018, his coaching philosophy, and a lot of that I'll be using for the podcast documentary series that I'm producing. It'll come out early next year on the Beaver baseball team, including 2018 and the history of the program. The conversation itself, though, both his first episode and definitely this one, too, is just very fascinating in of itself. So I think you'll enjoy this whole conversation. And don't forget to check out that documentary when it comes out soon. But first, OMG, we've got a new sponsor on the podcast, and it is OMG. That's Oregon Marketing Group. OMG is a digital marketing agency. They do web design, video production, content creation, blogging, graphic design. They can help you with search engine optimization or any sort of content creation. Small projects, big projects, doesn't matter. Oregon Marketing Group can help you out with whatever your business needs are. In fact, it's kind of fun because when there was Pat Casey night at a Volcanoes game up in Salem last year, they did an advertisement with Pat Casey and so they're just doing all the Pat Casey related advertisements. Their web Website is OregonMarketingGroup.com. And again, any content creation, video production, radio spots, whatever it is, check them out. And I'll put their link in the description. All right, let's get to this conversation with Pat Casey, the man who logged 900 wins in his time at Oregon State. The first question I ask him has to do with the very difficult 1999 season, the first year the Pac-10 unified to Oregon State was playing with the South, which I talked with Gary Henderson about recently, former pitching coach at Oregon State. So that's a fun jumping off place to talk about Pat Casey's history at OSU. So please join me in welcoming Pat Casey. When I talked with Gary Henderson, I uh, we were chatting about you know his time coaching with you and and especially those years in the '90s. Gary said, "I can't go long talking with Case without the '99 season coming up." <laughs> <laughs> what is it about 1999 that's so memorable? Well, it was our first year in the South, and so you know I had one of the coaches in the South tell me, with all respect, Case, hey, you know I'm not sure you guys know what you're getting into. He and he was good. He's a good, great friend. Everything else, the the, the, the coaches in the Pack Six, once we started playing there, Bob Milano, uh, Gary Adams, Mike Gillespie, Pat Murphy, Jerry Stitt, Mark Marcus, they were fabulous to me. Now they didn't want to be in the league, and they thought that they were going to hammer us, and we were going to run away and say, "Okay, we've had enough. We give." And they, the first couple of years, made it pretty difficult on us. So Gary will tell you that he rolls in here. In 98, we were really, really good. We had complete turnover, and we were 7-17 we were to 17 our first year. And so there were a lot of, you know, there were a lot of meetings and a lot of head scratching. I don't think I did a very good job of keeping my competitiveness out of knowing that it was our first time and, and that we were young and that we had a new club, and I probably should have had more patience and I probably should have been more prepared for the fact that it may not be as good a season as I wanted it to be. So that's a lonely trip in 99. And I know that uh, if you're an infield coach, you know, there's some solace in saying, hey, we, we did a very good job defensively, or if you're the hitting guy, or if you're the pitching guy, 
I think when you're the head coach, you're wearing it all. And I think the rest, and I think Spence and, 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 um, and Gary and everybody else involved was cared deeply. But I, you know, I think you wear it a little heavier if you're the head guy. I think, you know, that I was bold enough to go out and tell everybody we're going to go in the South and bold enough to tell, you know, my buddy, Mark Marcus at Stanford that, Hey, Mark, come on, we're going to, we're going to be here. And, uh, we got, we got knocked around pretty good in 99 and, um, probably learned more about coaching in 99, which was the worst year I had at Oregon State, worst year I had in my coaching career than I probably did in all the other years combined. And so, um, you know, failure is not the, um, the end all if you, if you truly believe in yourself. But if you don't, it could be. But if you believe in yourself and you decide, okay, there's more and I can do more and we can do more and we got to find better ways, then it's a motivation and it's a step towards success. And um, it's something that you almost have to go through, I think, uh, if you're ever going to get to where you want to be. That's one of the things that a lot of guys have brought up, whether it's Jake Mulholland in the ninth inning at Mississippi State or Stephen Kwan early in his career, that you believed in them and knew what they were capable of, maybe more than they did themselves. And it seemed like that same belief was also true in 99 in a more broad sense. It was, you know, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the, the difference was a little bit is the fact that now I had to make sure that I believed, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm the one that, that was, like I said, I'm the one that was wearing it. Cause I was the one that told everybody that we could do this and how we could do it. And, um, so, I felt huge responsibility for all the players, the program, the boosters, um, just the, you know, to go through a season like that and to know that, um, you know, my AD walked in and said, hey, you know, I'm going to tell you right now, we need to win more games. So um, my job was on the line. I signed 11 straight one-year contracts, you know. Tells you how much confidence they had in me, right? Um, so... I do believe in guys. I don't recruit them not to believe in them. And, um, you know, there's two guys right there that's a perfect example. You know, I, I saw Stephen Kwan when he walked in the door. And after some time, I told Kwan, I said, just think how good you could be if you're as good as I think you're going to be. And, you know, that he was a hardworking, um, humble guy. But he just, you know, he, he didn't really believe it. You know, he wanted it, he worked for it, he'd fight anybody for it, but he didn't believe it. And you know, that that's something you gotta have. And Molly, same deal. You know, um, the guy came in as a fresh and was dealing and um, everybody has a bad game. I just don't want you to give up on yourself, you know? And uh, so um, a, lot of, a lot of guys like that, a lot of examples like that. And um, like I said, I think that, I, I don't think I did a good job of coaching in 99 on top of um, probably not having a lot of experience back, not having a lot of depth back. Um, you know, we could find any excuse we want to have. The bottom line is that I didn't do a good enough job of figuring it out. Speaking of, you brought up the, the competitiveness that I think is, you know, inherent. A lot of guys talk about that for you. Uh, the, the interesting thing that a lot of the people I've talked with bring it up, not just in baseball coaching, but they'll start talking about you playing basketball. <laughs> Dwight James talking about you at Portland or George yeah. Fox or Gary Hedges, the pickup ball. Chris yeah. Pine was talking about, I would do running around Gill and I'd see Pat Casey down there running the court. Yeah. Seemed like you were pretty competitive on the hardwood. Well, you know, when you grow up, like I grew up, you had to be competitive, you know, you, you, you had 
seven seven kids in one house and only enough food for five of us. So you know, I had to, had to find a way out how to get her done. I, I just think by nature, you know, um, how you grow up, where you grow up, what the expectations are. You know, my dad was a very very competitive human being, still is to this day, um, and we were competitive. We were competitive in what we did. Um, I also think that we're, you know, the one thing that we probably understood more than anything that was, you know, being competitive doesn't um, excuse you not respecting your opponent or not preparing yourself or not doing the thing right. So, um, yeah, and I, I think I made a lot of mistakes in coaching due to my competitiveness. I think there are times that my competitiveness um, culminated with built up anger over you know, losing a game or not executing a situation that um, kept me from um, maybe communicating better. I, I, I became a much better communicator um, in coaching uh, without question um, as I advanced in my, in my career. And so, uh, you know, everybody always says, you know, hey, not everybody, but I, I hear a lot of people say, I wouldn't change anything, you know, and I, I'm just not a good enough coach to tell you that I wouldn't have changed. There's a lot of things I would have changed. Um, there's some things I never would have changed, but there are things I would have changed. I wish I would have, like I said, I wish I'd been more patient early in my career. I wish I'd been more communicative. So there's a ton of things. I'll never be one of those guys that says, you know, I, I would never change a thing. It's, you know, it's because it's reality. It is that this game isn't that easy to play. It's not e that easy to win. The ball bounces right, it bounces left, it bounces high, it bounces low. Situations that occur that you can't control. To think of where we are in this atmosphere of college baseball. Jack will relate to this. Heck, you go, you used to start the season February 1st, and of course, obviously, it's rain. We can't put your tarp on after train, it's got to dry out. So you'd go down and play 15 or 16 games on the road and never practice on your field. So some of those challenges were you know, obstacles for everybody. But here again, I don't think that there was anything that once we got a few of the right guys, and we had some guys from the very time I was here, I could tell you right now, uh, Ryan Leip on my first club, David Schmidt on my first club, Alan Schnelling on my first club, um, a lot of guys that had the, had the, the right thing going. We just, you know, like I said, we just didn't have a chance to expand. We didn't have a chance to, uh, you know, we're playing in a, in a ballpark that a guy from a big-time recruit, let's say, that wasn't from this area would come up, would probably say facilities are not, you know, comparable to somebody in the South. So we had a lot of, we had a lot of challenges, and, and um, we, we figured it out. When you talk about the ways that you – improved as a coach, of, of use your competitiveness, but in a positive way, communicated better. If you try to pinpoint how you changed that, how you learned it, who taught that to you, what players impacted you, what areas outside of baseball, I'm sure there's not one thing, but what stands well, out to you? I, I think the surprising thing would be for a lot of players that, that they all impact you, you know, and I learned from the players. I learned from, from them. And you, you come home on a weekend and you go 0 for 3, and you, 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 if you don't learn something, then you shouldn't be coaching. Or you go 2 and 1, or you go 3 and 0. Oh, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, I, I learned more. First of all, the, 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 the game is the teacher for a while. 
you know, the game itself is the teacher for a while. Um, but your players and how they respond to what you're trying to do. And if you're not aware that that isn't working, um, then I think that you're making a mistake. And I think that's sometimes the mistake I made early in my career was if we just work harder, we'll get through this. If we just work harder. And, and that kept me at times maybe from, you know, explaining to somebody why we need to work either harder or smarter or um, me communicating better with them. I just, I just, there's just a lot of things that you learn from the game itself. Losing, uh, to me, was so impactful and so miserable that it was hard just to just to walk around and feel proud of yourself when you when you got beat. So I had to I had to not accept losing. I had to learn how to handle losing better. And then when I did that, I became a better coach. But there's not a guy. I mean, you if you ask me about any club, and I'll tell you, there's guys that were on our my very first club in '95 that could have played on our championship teams, and there's guys in every club I ever had that were good enough to play there. Getting enough of those guys, uh, getting a schedule put together that allowed us to RPI out, having a turf field, having a facility, a, a combination of many, many things. I think the 98 club, to be honest with you, I think if the 98 club gets to a regional, we got a chance. Back then, it was just win the regional to go to the World Series. I think we got a... Mike Gillespie told me that. Mike Gillespie, rest in peace, my friend. He's the guy that stood up in the meeting and said, you know, it might not be good for USC, but it's good for our conference, and I think that we had to bring him in. And then when I went down there and played him in 98, and of course they won the national championship, and he was a guy that I admired. A very, very good coach, very smart, very hard to manage against. You know, he told me afterwards, he said, I, I'm, I'm more than impressed with your club, especially your pitching. He said, as deep as your pitching is, I think if you get in a regional, you got a chance to win that thing. So just a lot of things impacted me. You know, uh, my dad always had an influence on me in a positive way. Every time things were tough, he would say something that was, would, would encourage me. Um, had players that encouraged me, coaches that encouraged me, my wife that encouraged me. Um, but at the end of the day, you can say all you want to say, and you can tell everybody how smart you were, how dumb you were, or how, how you, you figured this out. At the end of the day, man, it's right down deep in your soul and your will that gets you through the things that are very, very difficult. And then it's amazing how that same challenge arises when you're fighting for the very top prize. It's the same feeling you had when you're trying to prove that you could play in the conference that you had when you were trying to prove we can be a national championship. It's that same will, that inner will, that got us through. And I say this quite a bit. If an individual's will is, is strong enough, it can become a team's will if there's enough individuals willing. And so we had some guys that figured that out, and that rubs off. It's, it's, like, uh, it's like anything else, man. Um, when there's something good going on, everybody wants to find out where and how and how much can I get of it, you know? <laughs> so big play, you know, I could, big, big players uh, that, you know, the two guys that are coaching now had huge impacts on me uh, when in that, uh, well, all the guys coaching there. But, you know, I can remember the toughness that Mitch came with. Um, I can remember Darwin and his ability to make me enjoy the game. You know, I never seen a guy do it so easy and always smiling and laughing, and I could never figure that out. Uh, he helped me 
tremendously in, in learning how to enjoy the game during the game, you know. Uh, you know, Joey coming in as a freshman and seeing the influence that Darwin had on him. Um, Gippy, you know, if you talk, you talk about a guy that, um, you know, was one of the most underrated guys in 05. You know, he hit ninth in our order, but his on-base percentage was 52%. Big, big hits in the, in the regional and super regional. So, you know, I could go down the list of those guys that are all there now and, and tell you how each and every one of them had something to do with with um, the success we've had. When I talked with your son, Joe, he brought up something that I think you would tell him regularly, even when he was growing up, even before he, he played, uh, was one of the things you had learned over the course of your career is to not just coach the players who had a similar demeanor to you, a similar personality, but the players who still cared were good players but just didn't necessarily react in the same way. Maybe a Jack Anderson would be an example. Tell me if, if you think that's the case. Uh, would that be – how did you learn that, and especially if Jack was an instance of that? Well, Joe's pretty wise, you see, because, um, you know, he's completely different than Brett, my other son. And then, um, you know, Joe uh, played with – we, we used Quan as example. He's completely different than Quan and and Jack Anderson's going to be completely different than Novak. And, yeah, I mean, that's a great point, and that's something that I probably was trying to say that he may have said better was in those early years, you know, I always felt like if a guy didn't show that competitiveness, I guess maybe the best way to put it the way I did, that he didn't care as much as I cared. You know, and that wasn't true. It wasn't true at all. And I think you can use Mitch Canham and Darwin here again as a perfect example. They were both huge leaders. I mean, we do not win a national championship in, in 06 uh, or 07. We don't go to the World Series in 05 without those two guys but and many other guys. But just using them as an example, Canham was more like me. You know, he was going to go in the village and we were going to we were going to torch everybody. You know, we weren't leaving any prisoners, you know. Darwin, you know, he's going to go in and he's going to get the job done, but he's going to leave some medical equipment, some food, bananas, and, you know, hey, sorry, guys, you know. And both is extremely effective, you know. And I, I would assume that Darwin had um, that charisma he had and that, that way of leading was more attractive to certain guys on the team. And then Canham's deal with put the war paint on and I'll carry the biggest gun was more attractive to other guys. And so... Um, that's exactly right, and I think that's one of the things that I've expressed to, you know, coaches is, you know, hey man, look, don't, don't, don't think the guy's not competitive because he he isn't like Jimmy or Jim, you know, and I could look back and you Shane McFeely, he played third base, he was the quietest guy in the field. I mean, he didn't say anything, and he, but man, I tell you what, he got it done. Where you know, um, Canham's out, and he's like I said, he's 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 directing traffic and getting after it pretty good. Um, Dallas Buck, he was completely different than Jonah Nickerson. You know, Jonah, he looked like he was just out there on a Sunday drive, man, and just carving where Buck was spitting and, and running the ball up in on guys and kicking the dirt and emotional. And so, uh, extremely good point. Um, I, was, I was not um, wise enough to see that probably early in my career and understand that. Um, so, I, I'm... I'm I feel fortunate that I was able to to um, discover that. If Jack Anderson is a guy who you, you learn to coach guys like him, it seems like Kyle Novak was more cut from your cloth, where he was the more natural guy you knew how to coach. So 
when when he he described the the way you'd get after him, taunt him to get in his face. In, in that moment during that period, however many months that was during fall ball before he you know, officially got a spot, and even then, I'm sure you were still fiery with him. Did you know for sure that he would rise to meet that challenge and and stand up and, and make that difference? Or did you ever think he might break and not not accomplish it? Well, I, I think I had a pretty good feel that this guy was a pretty tough character. Uh, but I also knew that, that, you know, he needed to understand that that isn't the only piece of the, of the puzzle. And so because him and I were probably very similar in, in some of our ways of expressing our emotions, he was an easy guy for me to have a good time with. And I guess there might have been a time or two where you feel like, hey, man, I hope he, when he goes to bed tonight, he understands, I really think he can play. But if he's going to play, he's going to have to understand it. He's going to have to grow up and develop emotionally, take that energy, take that fight, take that competitiveness, and, um, and, and learn how to channel it so that it can become productive because he had a lot of talent. Jack Anderson, you know, he's easy to coach. I mean, Jack's going to come out and do absolutely everything you ask him to do to, to over and over to the best of his ability. And Jack would never put any pressure on himself as far as, hey, I'm not giving enough because he knew he did. So Jack was easy to coach. I think every guy you coach, you know, that you have to truly believe that there's a part of the word coach that's so much different than the word manage. You know, you manage in the big leagues. You know, you manage people, you manage decisions, you manage superstars, you manage lineups. In college baseball, you coach, you teach, you parent. Um, there's a huge difference in managing something or coaching something. You know, you can be a someone that manages a warehouse and do a very good job of managing a warehouse and not even get to know who who's working for you, but you're your chain of command makes it a very productive warehouse. Where coaching, that doesn't work that way in, in, in college athletics, in my opinion. And uh, if I was to go there and um, try to manage a situation, I don't think that I would be very good at it. But I think coaching is getting into the depth of a soul, getting into a guy's mind, um, not being afraid to, to challenge him to the point where they're probably going back to the locker room and you know, dropping some, some vowels on you there, you know, and, and uh, being okay with it, you know, being okay with it. I mean, I, I would rather a guy, I've never had one player ever come back and say, gee, I wish I wouldn't have worked that hard. Never, okay. you know. So I think at times you, you, there's a risk you run when you say, hey, you know, uh, I would rather have a great relationship with this kid in five years and than and, and have a great relationship with him while he's in college, but not push him or press him or try to get him to become something that he doesn't think he can become. Some guys, you don't, you don't worry about it. You know, if you look at Nick Madrigal, you know, there are days you had to shut him down. Hey, Nick, that's enough ground balls. And same with Nobi and, and a lot of guys. So uh, just everybody's different. Everybody, you know, now when you say that and you do that, you also got to take this, this, this creation that you have and make it one. And that is what is the great catch 22. You coach everybody differently because they're all different. Anybody that says, I coach them all the same, I treat them all the same, I'm not a good enough coach to do that. I don't know how you treat everybody the same. Not everybody is the same. One guy comes from one background, another guy another background. Um, just, just impossible for me to think that if you treat everybody the same, you're going to get out of it what you want. 
um, you treat everybody, you give everybody and treat everybody with your very best, and that's a similar um, attribute to what you're doing, but not that you can coach everybody the same, impossible for me to do. So then you have this, this concoction of, of uh, individuals that need to become a team, but yet they're still individuals, and you have to coach them as individuals, but you also have to coach them and bring them to one. And that's, that, that's the, that is the key. And a lot of guys can, baseball, coaching baseball is not very difficult. You know, here's how you throw the ball, you get four seam, get on top. You know, here's how your footwork works. Here's how you keep your glove open on the ground ball. Here's, you know, our basics for hitting. Um, fundamentally, the teaching, you know, coaching baseball is that not, isn't that difficult. But getting guys to take baseball and, and, and transform it into a, um, a, a, a game that you have to win, a game that you have to play, a game that you have to figure out, um, just all the intricacies in the game, all the, every pitch, something matters. So, you know, one of my favorite film clips is in 06. We always talk about some things in baseball we, we do, we absolutely do the same when we do our rundowns or we do our bunts and then there's other things that you're unique and you can drag how you want and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, we, we, Shane McFeely comes up, backhands the ball with guys at, uh, at first and third throws to the plate. Mitch makes the tag just like he is. And he comes up and he does what we always say, look for the next play. We talk about covering the bags and there's Kunda standing at second base with five up, that glove up, just like we say, boom, Mitch looks for the next play. There's Darwin right where he's supposed to be. And then we run a, a, a you know a one throw run down a tag and double play and we're out of the inning. But it was the fundamental um, you know uh, practice that we went over and over and over and tried to detail how that little how important it is to look for the next play, how important it is to cover the bag, how important it is to have five up, how important it is to run our rundowns the same. And so um, those when those things become habit and then in the game you just play. Speaking of well, a guy like Novak, we were talking about, I want to say there's a story from the 2018 postseason. This would have been the second Minnesota game, Super Regionals, about him and being put in the lineup that day. I know this is two years ago, so maybe right. it's too specific of a story. It's totally right. fine if you don't remember. Oh, I remember. Okay. <laughs> You're probably talking about the fact that I'm sitting in my office for the game, and I was notorious for making a lineup about 10 minutes before game time, you know, and... Uh, he drove every SID crazy, and uh, and of course, obviously, the scorekeepers they didn't like it, and, and this. But we're at home, and now you have the NC2A involved, so they're always pressing for the for the lineup. But anyway, uh, somebody came in my office, one of the players, and said, "Hey, coach," he said, "You know, I just want you to know, I I really want Novi in the lineup tonight, and I think the team does." I said, "Oh, okay." And uh, he kind of looked at me, "Hey, man, I hope you don't take that wrong and anything." And so he turns around, and gets ready to walk out, and I said, "Hey." I really want nobody in the lineup tonight too. And so I thought that was just a great piece of trust that we have with one another on the club. Tells you something about nobody because he couldn't hardly walk. Um, they wanted him to line up for a reason and it was because of that presence, that that mindset, that energy. And, um, you know, he got a big hit in the game. And so um, uh, I think those things are, are vital that it, that, the, the, you know, the, the, um, one of the things that coaches that, that I always hear 
uh, we we talk about as coaches. But you know, if you turn on any TV and you you know, we're family, and and you know we're one, and we're and there's this camaraderie thing, and, and you know, which is which is true. That has to be something. But you have to also know that you have there's going to be high seas. There's going to be controversy. There's going to be chaos. There's going to be times of um, ruffling somebody's feathers. There's going to be somebody saying something they wish they wouldn't have said. There's going to be good times. There's going to be bad times. And I think that, um, you know, you have to, you have to create practice situations to create some chaos and some, in some, um, situations that may seem a little ambiguous. Uh, you may have to create a competitive situation in practice. You may have to have a competitive, uh, um, speech to them in the locker room you might have to create a competitive one-on-one confrontation but you just can't fear the fact that the player may not like what you said or that he may not like how you said it Uh, you just have to trust that he's gonna that he's gonna understand that you have his best interest at heart and the club's best interest at heart and if you do that and you really do then you can make some mistakes with guys and we make them all the time you know you play 65 games and you know, there's times when you you should pat a guy in the butt and, 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 and you're kicking him in the butt. There's a time you should kick him in the butt and you're patting him on the butt. So emotions are high. You know, I never got into everybody had to do this. Everybody had to do that. There's guys that, that were emotional and guys that weren't. There were guys, you know, we just one, the one common denominator was that we were all going to go at this thing with everything we had. There was going to be no turning around. There was going to be no backing down. There was going to be no doubt. And that was, that, that was the premise of the whole thing. We, we are leaving no doubt. And um, does, does that mean you win them all? No. Does that, I mean, you can play your tail off in baseball and um, lose a close game because, you know, you know, ball hit one inch on the fair side of the foul line. You know, I, I still can't figure out why they call foul line foul. And if they hit it, it's fair, right? You know, it's, that's why baseball's so difficult. You can't figure the damn game out, you know. Um, but for sure, um, you got to get the last out. It, it makes sense to create some chaos and practice to create some wildness because baseball is a chaotic game. It's not going to go according to the paper. Novak even said we would practice rain delays, maybe fall ball, and go into the dugout for 20 minutes, come back out. He was referring to the, to the Washington game and said, we had practiced this. Do you remember practicing rain delays? Well, yeah, you know, I mean, you, you, you do, you simulate what you think is going to happen. And so there's days when you you might not be quite as excited about your club in the fall and you go ahead and just keep them out there in the rain. And there's other days you come in, go in the locker room, do what you do in a rain delay, come back out. Um, you create as many um, chaotic scenarios that you think would arise and, and you know we I got better at that too we as a as a program got better at that you know let, let's say we're running a bunt drill and we wanted to run that for five minutes so we ran the same bunt drill and all of a sudden you know during that bunt drill somebody would throw the ball away at first and then we go back to the to the same play well that doesn't happen in a game so now what we do is we say that doesn't happen in a game let's do what happens in a game you throw the ball away at first now we're first and third now we're out of the bunt situation we're in a first and third situation so we got a lot better at um, understanding that, you know. Uh, I never got a chance to be an assistant coach, so uh, everything I did in coaching was trial and error. Um, and and I was fortunate to work with some really good coaches throughout my my career, 31 years as a head coach. And 
I do believe a head coach has to be strong. I do believe a head coach has to be direct. I, I think a head coach has to be the voice. I think the guy has to also give the coaches he's working with the ability to coach and let them let them coach instead of trying to tell them what they have to do all the time. You know, um, if you're going to hire a guy to coach, let him coach. And so I think discussions on how you want to do things are in meetings are great. And, I, and there's times in heck, man. I mean there's probably never a coach that I work with where you didn't have some type of a, a, an argument. Um, that's probably not even a good word, but an exchange in the dugout over certain situations. And that's not an expected. Why shouldn't it be? We both care. You know, we're both trying to create the same um, result. And so um, same with players. I never really got too worried about guys, you know, bumping around with one another or, um, letting somebody know they'd like to see them do something a little differently as long as it was all in the text of we want to win the game. You know, people ask you what you miss the most, and, it, and it's hard to put that, to quantify that because there's so many things. Because certainly if you, you, you just miss the interaction with, with young men. But winning, you miss winning. because And I'll tell you why, because of the fact that that affects that young man or young gal so profoundly in their life because everything you know that happens in this world how you're treated if you're a winner or a loser in people's minds and what it means to win for me being a good husband is winning being a good student is winning being a good steward is winning being a good person is winning so if you really understand winning when somebody asks you what you miss the most you miss winning and i bet you if you go to somebody like uh Kyle Novak, or you can go into anybody you want. Go to go to Raj, uh, go to Ryan Light, go to Andrew Chekis. I don't care. Winning. When you win and you get on that bus, or you win and you get in that locker room, there is a feeling of accomplishment, success, camaraderie, and and and, and um, the ability to, and vision to see there's more. And so then, pretty soon, it just doesn't come. It just doesn't come down to hey, we want to have a winning season or, hey, we want to get to the, it comes down to winning, you know, and then all of a sudden you practice like a winner and you drive your car like a winner and you eat your breakfast like a winner and you lift weights like a winner and you talk to people like a winner and you shake their hand like a winner and you address them like a winner and you treat them with respect like a real winner does. And so um, I'm not just talking about the win and the loss column, but I'm telling you that when those things become part of your DNA on and off the field, um, you, you start climbing that mountain pretty good. And, and all of a sudden, finishing third in the pack 10 doesn't seem like it's very good. Yeah, there were so many, I mean, we talk about, we'll talk about a lot more wins in 2018. One of the fun pieces in the midst of a win against Washington, I remember Tyler Malone saying during that rain delay, four and a half hours, they're hanging out in the locker room playing mafia and listening right. to music and all that. Tyler Malone said, Joe, your son, tried a quote-unquote 30-piece bubblegum challenge. Did, did you see your son stuff his mouth? Well, no. Now, I'll tell you that, that I've heard that, and I believe that. The, the great thing about being in a facility like we had at Omaha and also here is the coaches have an office and the, and the players have a locker room. <laughs> and so, you know, and that's the way it should be. Uh, you know, a four-hour rain, rain delay um, – you know, you're just kind of waiting for the car to pull up and the clowns to get out. You know, you don't know what to do. So whatever they were doing, I'm sure they're having a good time. And at that time, 
Joe wasn't playing a lot because you had a, you know, uh, Trevor Larnick wasn't too bad and, and uh, Kwani wasn't too bad and Nobi wasn't too bad. You know, those, those older guys had, had the, had the uh, playing time down pretty good. So he was probably uh, in there having a good time with most of the guys. But yeah, I, you know, I, 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 I don't get into, like I tell them, locker room's yours, man. When I come in here, I'm going to talk to you and I'm going to get out. It's your locker room. You guys take care of it. Um, you know, there, there was that particular game. There was no doubt in my mind uh, when we got done with the rain delay, or whether it was the next day, that we were ready to take care of business against the University of Washington. Um, that they, they were, they were zeroed in on on, on my calendar pretty good. Yeah. Speaking of Trevor Larnick, uh, I mean, there's so many moments from the Arkansas series we could talk about, but uh, if you can remember specifically his home run to to. Um, obviously take the lead. Bale said of all his coaching moments, Trevor Larning's home run was the, the pinnacle for him. That's the yeah. one he remembers most. For you, not not to compare it, but do you remember the elation and the consternation of Trevor Larnick batting a ball over the right field fence? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was amazing and uh, electrifying, uh, rewarding. You know, here's a guy that when he was a freshman was, you know, hitting under 200 and wonder if he could ever play the game to taking it to the highest level. But that was, that was sure that, that was vintage Trevor just saying, you, you're not beating us. And I mean, cause you're talking about left on left and the guy going 93, 94 miles an hour and, and stinking Trevor just running a rod out of the house. Um, so huge, huge, uh, swing of emotion. Um, and, and then as a head coach, you know, you, you immediately go to, okay, what am I going to do defensively? You know, you got to remember, we've made, we made enough changes at that time that we didn't have any roster players left other than what we put in the game. So we had to bond, we had to pinch run, we had to do some things like that. So <clears throat> I didn't have a chance to enjoy it as much as Bales because I went right into, you know, what are we going to do defensively? Um, you know, how are we going to stay with pitching? Do we want to get somebody up in the pen? And, and some things like that, but you know, you could you could go back and find uh, some the most unbelievable moments in Oregon State baseball history, and and I can guarantee you that that would be um, one of them that would be etched in there forever. Do you remember how you celebrated Game Three to the final out, and you win the national championship? Do you remember, you know, what you did in the next? Sixty seconds. Well, I, you know, they're all different. You know, you're you're in 06 and it's down to the last pitch. It's just like, okay, man, we've been here for two weeks. Our guys have given everything they got. You know, it's 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 Gundy, and here we go. And so I mean, we're right now the last pitch, and you're just, you know, 07, It was we we were in in a rhythm maybe that I've never seen a team get into for 10 games and went back there and won five straight. And, you know, I don't think we trailed for like 50-some innings, didn't make an error. You know, I mean, just some crazy stuff going on. Uh, but in 18, you know, I remember thinking, you know, never seen a guy put down 20 guys in a row in the College World Series. It's a freshman. And uh, I, I, was, I was extremely confident going into the ninth inning that, uh, you know, that he was going to handle that thing. So... Um, I think that the the first thing I did is turn around and, and wrap my arms around the guys who were standing next to me, which were which the coaching staff, 
and um, just kind of really had the ch a chance to uh, watch the guys go out on the field and know what they had put into this thing and what it meant to them and how it must feel. And then it just seemed like the next split second, you know, my wife and my daughter were standing right next to me and I had both of them in my arms. And so um, just just rewarding, though, to see the price those guys paid and get to see that the, the, what we had talked about, what we would, had worked for, um, came to fruition. And so um, pretty cool. How close did you get to taking Kevin Abel out of that game? 20 in a row. <laughs> well, you know, we... we Early in the, in the game, you know, he had a third inning, I think it was. You know, he had the bases loaded. He had a little bit of trouble. Might have been the second inning. I don't know. We never dreamed he would get him. You know, we we were really pretty confident we could get him into the fifth. But but during that World Series, as you well know, you know, one of our strengths was our starting pitching. And we, we just couldn't get our starters through the fourth inning. It was kind of amazing how good um, Luke and how good um, uh, everybody was there, Fem and and, and those guys uh, really had a hard time, you know, both of them just battled their tails off, gave us some great innings, did some things like that, but uh, uncharacteristically, they they usually went deep into games, and we really never got them that deep in a game. And so we had spent a lot of pitching, you know, throughout the, throughout the series, and some huge pickups there. You know, what Chamberlain did against North Carolina in game one was unbelievable what it did for our staff. But... Um, you know, I we just I thought we were in pretty good shape if we could get through the fifth with him because then I knew we had some guys that were ready to go in the pen. Um, and, and then I think Nate and I talked about the fact that hey, you know, if he gets anybody on, let's let's get somebody hot and get him in. And and he just nobody got on. I mean, what are you gonna do? And it wasn't like he was. I mean, it was mostly until he got to the, the last two innings. It was almost all fastball change. He was just doing it so easy, uh, so confident, so dominating. That you know, uh, you know, it was it was. He never put us in a position after the third inning where we even thought, okay, now we got to get a guy up. And but we, and we were ready for that. I mean, we talked about, it. hey, if he gets somebody on, that's it. But he just kept getting better and better. And so I mean, it was almost, it was almost easy. I mean, for us, me and me and Nate, because we pretty much came to the conclusion. When he gets somebody on, we'll, we'll get somebody out there, and he just never did. When I talked with Kevin, I told him, I'm not, I don't you know, ask you about your health or injury or anything like that. I don't want to put you on the spot or anything along those lines. But then he brought it up unprompted. We're talking about Mississippi State because he kind of pitched on short rest that day, and he brought it up of ah, people don't know about – they talk about innings or days of rest and all that, and, and people don't know what goes on behind the scenes, and I, and I know my own body. And I could tell very quickly I didn't want to – have to ask him about innings and days of rest he wasn't comfortable but he was very quick to say no nobody can even arkansas being an example n nobody deserves to really criticize of whatever nine innings it was because pat casey nate yeski i we know what's going on we know what's right I, I, and he's always seemed to, to stick to that for sure right yeah well i don't you know i mean he came back the next year i think he had three starts or whatever um you know, I, I think that if you look at the history of uh, arm injuries and things like that, you know, uh, guys used to throw all the time, and then that became something that they didn't do. And um, they start throwing a lot more when they're younger, and that's something that contributes to everything. But I think um, no matter who you are, whether you're a guy that had a lot of innings or you're a guy that had no innings or you're a guy that was a, 
a closer and, and threw 18 innings on the year and you had TJ or your guy that threw 120 innings and you didn't, I, I don't think there's any controlling that. I think if somebody comes in your office and says, gee, I got a sore arm um, and you pitch him, then you've got to question what you're doing. Uh, we never had the problem with him in any, any way, shape or form. A matter of fact, one thing that nobody even thinks about is the fact that he dominated uh, LSU in a regional. Well, in the Super Regional, uh, he didn't pitch. So he went almost 15 days. I think he did go 15 days without throwing a pitch between his regional and there. So he was well-rested. Uh, you know, um, he's he, he knows and, and, uh, that he could have went to Coach Yeski at any time and, and said and if he felt like he was being stretched or anything like that. But, um, you know, like I said, it's that trust factor. We trusted that what he was telling us was true. Um, so I, I, when he when he gets gets his first out in the big leagues, we'll we'll all be clapping for him. I appreciate that. A, a last thing or two, because you've been so generous with your time. Thank you so much. Um, one of the the things I most enjoyed talking with the guys is asking not just about what it felt like to win a national championship, because anybody can tell it it felt great. You're celebrating the elation, the fun of that but what it meant years later and what that did for you. Sometimes of how much it was, sometimes how little of this actually, you know, I had to look for identity somewhere else. Kyle Novak would even talk about you had to first be happy in order to actually relish in a national championship. It's not going to bring that to you by itself. For you, when you think back um, to what that meant and how much validation that gave you, maybe it's a lot, maybe it's none, when you think about the meaning of whether it's 2018 or before that, of those national championships, where where does that sit in in your own recollection of what you are most proud of? Well, uh, first of all, there's there's when you're talking about coaching, and you're talking about what I did for for um, you know for a profession in the, in the in the sport of coaching, um, you know, winning a national championship, you 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 can't accomplish any more on the field. Um, if you do that and you don't accomplish something with the guys that are on the field later in their life off the field, then it's not very rewarding. So I think that it becomes more um, rewarding and more exciting every chance I get to see a guy that's out there doing something, whether it's Chris Pine that you talk about that wasn't on a championship team, who was part of this program, so that's part of his win, or whether it's you see Nick Madrill getting a hit in the big leagues, or you see Mike, Michael Gretler telling me he's getting married, or whether you see Noby becoming a head coach, there's nothing about those things to me that aren't tied directly into to what we talked about before, and that's being a winner. And you don't have to win a national championship to be a winner. The one thing winning a national championship does for the guys that are on that team is it creates a bond that'll never be broke forever. And the strength of that medal in that ring with them diamonds on it is intertwined from every guy in the bullpen to the guy behind the plate to the guy in right field to the coaching staff that'll never be broken and you can say almost every year we had a good year or we didn't have a good year or a lot of teams had a good year or a lot of team you go to the world series you are you are a good baseball team i mean it's not like i always say that hey you go to the world series i mean who could not be playing good in the world series they, they just got done winning a, a regional and a super regional so everybody's here is, is playing well but ultimately Every year, only one team, one team out of all of them, every single Division I baseball team other than one 
is separated from the one. And the one is separated from everybody else. That is the difference. And till the day each and every one of those guys leaves this earth, they're going to know they were part of something that nobody else in that particular year ever accomplished. And so um, that roster of 35 guys and that coaching staff uh, in the years that they won national championships did something that nobody else in college baseball did that year. And I don't care whether they did it the hard way. I don't care if they did it the easy way. I don't care if they did it with pitching. I don't care if they did it with hitting. Those guys know they have that inner feel for the rest of their lives. They're connected with that. And that is so embedded and so deep that if Trevor Larnick called Adley Rutschman, who needed Zach Taylor to go get Joe Casey to call Kyle Novak to go get Bryce Femmel to make sure you picked up Nick Madrigal, all those things would happen. Yeah with passion because of what they did. So great memories, great feel for what they're going to do with the rest of their lives. And um, can't tell you how humbled and appreciated I am that those guys came here, uh, buttoned up this jersey, became one, and, and did it the way they did it. And there are so many storylines we could touch on, but not enough time. But it's been a blast to talk with all the players and you, Pat. So thanks so much for your time and chatting about it. Well, thanks for being so uh, dedicated to doing this, man. I think it's a very worthwhile thing for those young kids to have the recognition of what they did and the history of Oregon State baseball, as we know, is deep and it's only going to get richer. Well, if Pat Casey is excited about the podcast documentary coming out, I hope you are too. You can get updates by joining the email list. I've got a link in the description to check out the website for this podcast documentary, get some updates, and be one of the first people to listen to it a few months from now. Before you go, I'm also giving a shout out to Old Mill Center, one of the new nonprofits that I am mentioning on this podcast. Old Mill Center is a local nonprofit. They help 1,000 local kids right here in Corvallis. They provide early education, therapy, intervention, prevention for most vulnerable kids in the area and their families as well, struggling with mental and behavioral health as well as access to preschool too. These are kids who may be struggling with homelessness, trauma, domestic violence, child abuse, neglect, just some of the examples. So you can check out the website, see if you want to volunteer, donate money, other resources, or just check out what they do at oldmillcenter.org. Again, that's oldmillcenter.org. Thanks so much for checking out the Beaver Tales podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Pat Casey. I've got another baseball guy from early on in Pat Casey's tenure, Seth Peach, coming up, as well as a two-sport athlete, gymnastics and track and field, Gene Roselle, joins me next week. So those will both be a lot of fun. Until next time on the Beaver Tales podcast, I've been your host, Josh Warden. Good night, everybody, and go Beavs.